You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Malachi 2, verse 17, we're going to be starting there this morning. We've been going through Malachi, and I've been enjoying it. Hopefully you guys have been enjoying it. Uh, It's been challenging and and convicting, and uh, a lot of great reminders, and a lot of uh, great reminders of of who we're called to be and who God is, and what he's done for us. And and today will be more of the same, so it'll be good. Malachi 2, 17, 3 to 6, if you want to turn with me there. Starting at verse 17, 2 verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? But behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that we could be here this morning. Just as Blair said, that, that we, can, we can feel safe as we come here because we live in a, in a country where people have sacrificed to make that possible, Lord. And, and that just reminds us of the sacrifice you made for us so that we could come before you and be at peace with you, Lord. And just as we talk about that this morning, as we, as we look to you, as we glorify your name and, and go through your word, Lord God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit, that, that you would convi- bring conviction and that you would bring change and that you would mold us more and more into to your image, into the church that you've called us to be, into the church that you are building. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we just spent 18 months having to put up with the side effects of the American election, right? 18 months. Everyone's Facebook opinions, usually negative opinions, the media's biased reporting, and of course Trump and Clinton, their constant slandering and finger-pointing at one another. Right? Seriously, it, it seems to me like, like every candidate-approved TV commercial that I saw about the election or, or any news article about the election, it was, just, it was just them pointing their finger at one another, pointing out how terrible and how evil the other one was. If Trump's a racist. Hillary's corrupt. Trump's sexist. Hillary wrote some emails, so she should be in jail for it. Um, Trump has weird hair. Right? All this, all this stuff. It was just constant pointing fingers. 
I on and on it went, and, and I'll, I tried to stay away from most of the most of the mess because I have no influence on the election, right? Um, you know, all you can do is pray, right? So I tried to stay away from all the, the opinions and the negativity. But even I was glad when it was over, regardless of who won, because the whole process, this whole process made me weary. And I can't imagine how, how weary it made uh, the American citizens. Again, the, the constant hypocritical judgments and slandering of each other, it gets pretty tiring after a while, Right? One party constantly saying to the people of America, judge that other candidate in this way, but don't judge me in the same way. Judge them like this, but don't judge me like that. Right? That over and over. That's what these candidates were doing. And in the passage this morning, we have the people of God looking at the world doing the same thing. They're doing the same thing. They're looking at all the evil that's going on in the world around them, and, and they're thinking that they're better than the world, that, that they feel they're on some higher moral ground than the evildoers and ungodly people of the day. So they feel they have the right to demand that God enact his justice against these evildoers, but, but not on themselves. They want God to enact justice on these evildoers, but not on themselves. In fact, they're actually questioning God's sense of judgment. And God's sense of justice, because they haven't seen him enact his, his judgment, and has instead seemingly allowed these ungodly people to prosper. And so it's at this point that God exclaims to his people through the prophet Malachi, You have wearied me. You have wearied me. Malachi 2.7 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied him? How have we wearied you, God? We've been good. This is how. By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and that he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So again, the Israelites are thinking to themselves that that surely, if God is truly just then according to them, he should immediately enact his judgment and justice upon those who deserve it, like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Upon those who have sinned against him. But since they haven't seen that, they haven't seen God pour out his wrath, they haven't seen the hellfire, right, pour down on them, they've come to the conclusion, well, then God must not be just. Where is this God of justice, they're saying. And secondly, then, in their mind, that also must mean that God must actually approve of the sin that's happening. God must actually approve of it. He must even delight in it because he's allowing these, these sinful people to prosper. Which would mean that contrary to scripture, they're saying that God isn't just, that God isn't good, that God isn't holy and set apart from sin. So it's no surprise then that these words of theirs, their, their judgments of the world and their judgment of God's own character, it's wearied God. He's tired of it. Let's not misunderstand, though. I think it's okay to, to humbly uh, question things and try to get a better understanding of who God is. But they were doing it in such a presumptuous and judgmental and hypocritical way, and God had had enough. He'd had enough. Especially, and I say hypocritical because, it, because they were just as guilty as those that they wanted God to judge. They were just as guilty as those they wanted God to judge. And, and on that note, if you've been following along with us through Malachi, 
The series through Malachi, we've previously learned that God's people and the priests of Levi who ran the temple of God, they'd become apathetic. They'd become rebellious against God in every, every part of their life. Whether it's at the temple, whether it's at home, whether it's at work and in social justice, they weren't feeding the poor. They'd just become rebellious against God. So yes, they were just as guilty. They were just as guilty. Maybe even more so than those they were judging. Because at least the world, the Gentiles, they're acting in ignorance against God. But God's people, they were acting out of apathy and rebellion against the statutes and laws of God that they knew full well. They're pointing the finger of judgment on the world and on God. But at the same time, at the same time, they're failing to look at themselves in the mirror and see their own sin. In fact, it even seems like they're using God's seemingly lack of justice against the world as an excuse for their own laziness, as an excuse for their own laziness in serving God. They're thinking, well, if he's not judging the world, then we'll be safe if we act a little worldly ourselves, right? But here's the truth. I don't think, I don't think they'd be calling for God's judgment to come swiftly if they had truly examined their own hearts. They think they're righteous, but they're not. If they truly examine their hearts, what they'd be calling for is not justice. They'd be calling for mercy. They'd be calling for repentance. And they'd be calling for mercy for the Gentiles, too. It's like when... uh, Audrey, my wife, and I ask our two boys to clean their rooms, right? We tell them, well, if you clean your rooms, uh, when you're done, you can have a treat. But if you don't clean your rooms, then there's going to be consequence. And speaking of being wearied, it almost never fails that within minutes, one of the boys will come running out of their room and run up, run up to us to tell on his brother. And, and he'll say something like, like, so-and-so is not cleaning his room, he's just playing, Right? It's more like, he's not cleaning his room, he's just playing, right? And, and the purpose of this tattletale is a cry for justice, right? His, his distorted perspective of justice. One brother is pointing the finger at the other one and basically saying, not fair, not fair. I'm, I'm cleaning my room and he isn't. Do something about this rebellion. Because if he gets to play and not clean his room, I should get to play and not clean my room. But to this, as parents, we simply say to the one that's tattling, we say something like this. We say, well, I don't see you cleaning your room either. Which begs the question, is your room clean already? Because if you want us to go check your brother's room, then we're going to check your room. So your room better be clean too, or you're both going to get in trouble. And how do you think he responds to that? Wide-eyed, runs to his room, starts cleaning regardless of whether his brother is cleaning his room or not. In other words, worry about your own mess instead of someone else's and leave the justice, leave the fairness to the parents who have a more objective view of the situation. Right? And this is exactly what God says to them through Malachi. He says that he is going to come and judge the earth. He's going to come and judge the earth swiftly, he says. But as verse 2 states, but who can stand... Who can stand when he appears? Who can stand when the Lord comes in judgment? 
And that's an easy answer. No one. Who can stand when the, Lord's come, when the Lord comes in judgment? No one. No one. God's basically saying to them, do you really want me to come and judge the earth right now? Do you really want me to come and check if your rooms are clean? Do you? Because you're just as guilty as those sinners you're pointing your finger at. And so just like them, you won't withstand my judgment either. To be careful what we're asking. On this topic, Jesus reminds us, or commands us rather, in, in Matthew 7, 1 to 5. Jesus says, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not take notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's weird. We seem to be so worried and concerned about everyone else's sin and, and making sure that they get punished for it. But we seem much, much less concerned with our own. As if we shouldn't be judged on the same grounds. Like we're on some higher moral plane than everyone else. And then from that false pedestal, we think we have the right to judge and point fingers and condemn others. And I'm not just talking about negative judgment either. We always think, well, negative judgment, that's what, that's what this is all about. But the, the Israelites were deciding in their own mind what was wrong and what was right. They were judging what was wrong and what was right. Let's remember that the judgment they cast upon themselves was good. They judge themselves as good and righteous. The ironic thing is that while they accused God of calling what was evil good, they were actually the ones doing it. They were assuming of God's approval of their works. Romans one thirty two speaks to this exactly. It says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. Those who practice such things deserve to die. They they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I think it's it's popular in our day, especially in, in our culture, North American culture, for us to hand out our approval to certain lifestyles and certain sins. Because it because it feels right to us, or because we think we think God is love and He'll be with okay with whatever. Right? But really giving approval to things that aren't godly is exactly the same as condemning others for their sin. In both scenarios, it's us taking the place of God and making ourselves judge. And that wearies God. That wearies God. And again, we have to be careful because as Jesus says, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. So when you look out into the world... And you start judging the, the murderers, you start judging the thieves, you start judging the poor, you start judging the rich, you start judging the, the, the Muslims, the homosexuals, our neighbors that don't go to church. We start judging them whether we're approving of their lifestyles or, or whether we're condemning them in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter. We'll be judged in the same way. If we judge them by their works, then we'll be judged by our works. And that's not a good thing. 
Romans 2, 1 to 3 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's a rhetorical question. You will not. In other words, let's quit casting judgment on one another. And let's leave it to God, who judges perfectly, who judges rightly. Instead, we're to simply love others as we love ourselves. Love our enemies, love our neighbors, love the sinners. Love them. Show Christ to them. Leave their judgment to God. Because we don't know. We don't have the full picture. We're not objective. God is objective. He knows what's going on. He is the perfect judge. And again, if we're calling down judgment of God on others, we're calling it down on ourselves. And no one can withstand his judgment in that scenario. Just as it says in my Bible's notes, it says, strict justice would condemn us all. Because sinful man cannot withstand being in the presence of a holy God. The wages of sin, again, as the Bible tells us, is death. And a just God will enact perfect justice. A just God will enact perfect justice, or he wouldn't be just or moral or even good. In fact, if he did allow evil to go unanswered, he'd be himself evil. And that's why God's warning his people here that, yes, he's a just and holy God, and judgment is coming, but that's exactly why they shouldn't be too quick to presume it or call it down. But here's the best part. Because before it comes, God wants to make his people ready. He wants to make his people ready to withstand his just and righteous judgment. And so what he's done is he's put a plan in motion for that day, a plan that's been put in motion before the creation of the world to securely make us be able to withstand his judgment. The Israelites thought God, God wasn't just or thought he wasn't good because he wasn't acting on his justice in a timely manner when they wanted him to, but that wasn't the case. He's not, he's not ignoring them. He's not ignoring the world. He's not ignoring us. He's being patient. He's being patient with us. He's waiting for us to be ready to withstand his judgment. Because on our own, we're toast. 2 Peter 3.9 echoes this sentiment. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I love that verse. God would rather no one perish in their sin. Thankfully for us, he'd rather see his people saved. He'd rather grant grace and mercy than punishment. And to make that happen, God would rather take the punishment we deserve upon himself. So this is what he says. This is how he responds to what they're saying. This is what he says will happen first. Malachi 3, 1 to 4. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. And then verse 5 starts with, and then he'll come in judgment. He's going to do all this first, and then he'll come in judgment. So first of all, a messenger is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And this could be referring to Malachi himself, since his name, as you might remember, means messenger. But this could also be alluding to John the Baptist, who, who was the forerunner for Jesus. Right? He, became, he came before Jesus to prepare people's hearts in repentance for the coming of the Lord. So it could be referring to one or the other or both. Who knows? Either way, this messenger is proclaiming that the Messiah... That the Lord, Jesus Christ, is coming. And as most of us know, the initial fulfillment of this part of the story is what we're going to be celebrating at Christmas and throughout the Christmas season in a couple weeks. A couple weeks. Get your uh, Christmas shopping done. Um, Yeah, we're going to be celebrating that, that, that that miraculous moment when the Son of God suddenly came into the world. And into his temple. But of course he came with a purpose. As it says in Malachi, he came as a refiner's fire. And and as fuller's soap. Why? To purify. To purify the sons of Levi. To purify the priesthood of God. Which we learned a couple weeks ago that we're a part of through Christ. Right? In Christ we're a royal priesthood. Temples of God filled with his Holy Spirit. This applies to us too. So Jesus came to wash us with fuller soap, which is like a bleach that would remove all stains. So he came to remove the stain of our sin. And then he came to purify us like silver, like gold in the refiner's fire. And the refiner's fire, it, it heats up metals to the melting point so that it can remove all impurities out of the metal to make it pure. In other words, Jesus came to make sinners righteous. Jesus came to wash us white as snow. Jesus came to remove all the sin from us and make his people holy for the day of judgment so we can be presented to God without fault and without blemish. In fact, Jesus himself, by his death and resurrection, has not only taken our judgment, but has become the only one worthy of judging the living and the dead. He's become the righteous judge. And I don't know about you, but if I was those Israelites standing there pompously questioning God's justice and even suggesting that that he approves of evil or that he is evil, and then this was the answer I received from God, I'd be getting on my knees in humble repentance. God was working to save them from their sin the whole time. While they they were busy getting angry and judging God for not dealing with the sin of others for not doing what they wanted him to do. Oops, right? It's a pretty big oops. But I think we have to ask ourselves, how often do we do that, though? How often do we do that? 
We try to twist God's character because things aren't working out for us. So we assume God isn't what he says he is. We call him a monster or, or unloving or unjust or absent just because we actually can't comprehend or understand what he's doing or why he does it. Especially when it comes to being refined. We're talking about being refined because the being refined is to be put through the fire. Whether it's being tempted in sin or whether it's being tested in, in, in life's trials or, or, or to be called into a challenging and seemingly impossible calling from God. Or to suffer for Christ's sake. So to be refined it, it is not always enjoyable, right? We don't always enjoy being refined. We usually don't enjoy being refined. So quite often when, when we're going through those things, when we're going through trials, especially Job-like ones that, that, that don't make sense to us, I think we often tend to lose sight and, and, and lose the purpose. And then we start to judge God. We start to question God. But again, like I said before, don't get me wrong. We're allowed to ask God what he's up to. The thing we have to be watchful of is where our questions and where our doubts take us. Because that's the point. That's the point of of being refined. It's in the trying and confusing times that we really get to see the measure of our faith. We really get to see the measure of our faith. It's in those times we'll either lean more on God and find that he's with us in the fire, or we turn from him. Hopefully it's the former. First Peter 1 verse 7 says, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. What we can't ever forget is that God's always working to save us. God's always working to refine us and is therefore being patient with us, even and especially in trying times, so that we can all get to that place of repentance where we can know him and grow in our relationship with him to be purified, sanctified, made holy. For example, if you found an abandoned dog, abandoned and stray dog on the side of the road, it's hair all matted and, and dirty and, and grimy. It's body limp and, and malnourished. And it's growling at you because it doesn't trust anyone. It's obviously been abused in the past. And then in your compassion, you decide to pick it up and take it home. And that's all well and good. You saved it. You saved it from certain death. That's amazing. But w- what wouldn't be good is if you left the dog in the state that it's in. No, you'd want to clean it. You'd want to feed it and love it and help it grow stronger and give it obedience training, right? So it can be healthy and happy and well-behaved. Right? Same with us. God loves us so much that he saves us where we're at. Dirty, grimy sinners wandering in the darkness. He saves us where we're at despite what we've done. But he also loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us where we're at. He doesn't want to leave us in the state that we are in. He wants to refine us and mold us and perfect us into who we're created to be. That's our God. That's incredible. 
Malachi 3.6, which Blair went through last week as well, it, it caps off this whole point in an amazing way. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. They're not consumed in their sin. They're not consumed in the refiner's fire because God is God. Because God doesn't change. Because God is faithful to his covenant promises. Because God does not abandon us even when we abandon him. Because God is a God of love, of mercy, and grace. Because God's will is higher than ours. And even when we don't understand it or even when we question it, he doesn't waver in it. Because God is the God of perfect justice. We're not consumed, though we should be. Because he is the Lord. And again, we're not consumed because he was consumed for us. He took on the fire. He took on the wrath of God for us. Jesus, Lamb of God, the sinless and perfect sacrifice, could withstand and therefore take on the judgment for our sin fully and completely. And he did. He took it upon himself. He took it upon himself at the cross so that now when the day of of judgment comes, We're judged not according to our sin, not according to our works, not according to what we've done. But we're judged according to his righteousness. We're judged according to what he's done. Through Christ, we're justified in the sight of God. We're able to enter God's presence with boldness, without fault, and with great joy. And this was God's plan all along. Even while his people, including us, judged the world hypocritically, judged him wrongly, and continuously sinned against him. God, in his grace and his patience and his wisdom, he made a way for them to escape the judgment that they, that we deserved so that we could find peace with him. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 to 31, it says, And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. We are not consumed because God is God. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, which is purification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's leave the judging then to the perfect and just judge, because obviously he knows what's up. He knows what's going on. And let's instead, in our lives, continually look to him, trust him, turn to him in faith. Even and especially during the trying times when, when, we, when the world doesn't make sense, when, when, when evil seems to be prospering or when we're going through trials. Because we can know, we can know with certainty and we can know with joy and with hope that God is just. And that he's working it all out through Christ for our eternal salvation and for our purification. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's amazing to read through the scripture and and to to be reminded, whether it's for the first time or, or for the hundredth time, Lord, that you are faithful. That you are a faithful God to your promises, to your people. Lord, that even though we question and we doubt and we judge others wrongly and we judge ourselves wrongly, 
Lord, you never waver. You never waver in your plan, in your will for us to be saved, to be set free from sin. Lord, and you proved that when you sent Jesus, your one and only begotten Son, to come into this world to take our place at the cross, to cover us in his righteousness. Lord, we can't thank you enough for what you've done. And Lord, I pray that that, um, if we've wronged you, like the Israelites were doing in this passage, Lord God, if we've judged the world wrongly, if we've judged you wrongly, I pray that this morning we'd be able to humbly come before you in repentance. And I thank you that as we come before you, you are quick to forgive, Lord. You are quick to forgive. Lord, we are not consumed because you are God. And Lord, I pray that as we, as we move forward in our lives, Lord, that we would constantly be remembering your faithfulness. That even in trying times, in times of trial, when things don't make sense, in times of suffering, Lord God, let's remember that you are with us. That you are standing with us in the fire. And we will not be consumed, Lord. That we can come out of it tested in faith and then see that our faith is strong. Because you have been strong for us, Lord. I pray that for every single person in this room here, Lord. That they would surrender to you this morning in faith and look to you and trust you in every single facet of their lives, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.